Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Last week on Truth and Justice, I broke down for you the entirety of the state's case against Jason Baldwin. As you heard, they really didn't have any case. The primary focus that resonated with the jurors, according to the charts they made during their deliberations, was simply the fact that Jason Baldwin was Damian Eccles' best friend. Although the state did land three punches. One being the testimony of Michael Carson, who had served time with Jason in the detention center. The second being the discovery of the so-called lake knife. And lastly, there was the red fiber that was tied back to Jason Baldwin's home. As you heard, what the jury did not have the advantage of hearing was the fact that more advanced testing of the fibers concluded that they were in fact not a match to anything in Jason Baldwin's house. The lake knife was never tied to the crime in any way, and later affidavits revealed that most likely the West Memphis police knew that the lake knife had been thrown in the lake over a year before the murders had occurred. And lastly, the fact that Michael Carson at this point does not stand behind his testimony that he gave in 1994. And that is the entire story, according to the court records, of Jason Baldwin's arrest, trial, and conviction. But as I said last week, there is much more to this story, and that story can only be told by Jason Baldwin himself. Jason, so in this week's episode, we broke down basically the three elements of the state's case against you, short of what the thing that I think resonated the most with the jurors, which was the fact that you were Damien's best friend. But the the three items that the jurors listed in their con category for you in the jury charts were the testimony of Michael Carson and the red fiber evidence and lastly, the lake knife. So I think I'd like to start today, if it's all right with you, is we'll, we'll kind of go through each of those points and give you a chance to rebut or explain anything surrounding them. So if that works for you, let, let's start with Michael Carson's testimony. What was your relationship with Michael Carson in jail? Were you actually in jail with him? I was in jail for over 289 days. A lot of that was spent, you know, just locked in my cell with no contact with anyone. But sometimes there was school and things like that, and sometimes... After I was there for a long time, they let me out with other people. And there are people that were there that I can remember that were there pretty much the whole time I was there. You know, and I can name these people. You know, I know what they look like and, and 
you know, and things like that and, I, and stuff like that. But then there's other people that kind of came in real fast, you know, was gone over a night or whatever. The first 48 hours there, you're not even allowed out of your cell, anybody. So that's anybody, which means they've been in that for a long time, even several months. But even then, so a lot of people came and went that I didn't really make note of. I didn't make note of Michael Carson. In fact, I, I couldn't even tell you what he looked like. I remember at the trial, actually, the first time I made note of him when he was walking in the courtroom, Paul pulled me to the side and said, hey, here's a kid coming in. He's going to testify that you told him that you committed the crime while you were in jail. Make sure, like the judge says, you show no emotion, no outburst, because it's important that you're here during your own trial, right? So this is the first time Paul said anything to me about this guy, right, and, and about what he's going to do to me right then. And then I can't even say anything about it because, as he, as I just said, what Paul reminded me, Judge Burnett had a rule of us, you know, hey, you're to sit there and be quiet and not say anything, no matter what you hear. The only time you can say anything is from the stand. And so the whole time I'm waiting to take the stand. I'm waiting for my family to take the stand and everything. And I'm doing exactly as I'm told, trusting the people who, who is the protectors of justice, who are supposed to be trying to find the truth, you know, to do so. And then comes this kid who tells us lie, just flat out lied on me. And at the time I knew nothing about him, knew nothing about why he did what he did right there on the stand, why he lied and or nothing. But years later, you know, pieces of the puzzle would come and people would tell me like my uh, new attorneys would tell me things and that my private investigators would find out about him and things like that. Like I was just the first person he would do this to. He would go on to do this many times over. You know, and maybe some of the people later on were actually guilty of whatever he was saying they did, but some of them had to be innocent like I was, you know. But he was given carte blanche and basically a get-out-of-jail-free card to do any type of illegal activity. And, and all he had to do was turn people into the state, whoever was, was the most famous uh, case going on. And at that time, in that jail, it was my case. And I was listening to your podcast, and he said it was his father that urged him to contact the police. But we learned, you know, through my private investigators and stuff, that his father, you know, had also learned to make deals with the uh, state attorney, with the prosecutors and stuff to get out of criminal charges to, you know, just give somebody up, whether they're innocent or guilty. And so after I was convicted and, and after I was at Barner for a long time, I got a letter from this counselor, Danny Williams, who gave me another piece of the story. He told me what, what you know, you were talking about in the podcast, the last podcast, that, you know, he was trying to use a scare tactic against his client to scare him straight because 
This counselor didn't know I was innocent. He only knew what the whole public knew, and the whole public was turned against me by the media. And so there was no presumption of innocence. And so he told this macabre, crazy story to this kid, and then this kid, Michael Carson, uses that as as a get you know as leverage as ransom to buy his way out of his crimes. And that that Michael Carson, that's how his lies impacted my life. It took my life away. It took Damien's life away. Jesse, you know, it is at this point his his trial was already over with and his life was taken away already. But he had his liar and his trial, you know, who was a different scenario. I don't think she necessarily looked for an opportunity to get her crimes off the book as more of the fact she was kind of forced and leveraged into it, like, hey, we're going to take your son away if you don't produce something, even if it's fiction. So they create the desperation and these people who, who are on the fringes of society, who, who are uh, illegals, for one lack of a better word, you know, someone who's committed a crime. And, and in Dickie Hutchison's case, I think that was someone who our system just needed to help instead of harm. This woman, a young mother who just got out of a divorce and was trying, you know, do her best. And I don't know if she was guilty of the check issue or if it was just an honest mistake. But obviously, it was obvious her and her family needed help. And instead, the state harmed her and, and took advantage of her and took advantage of us all. It's all related to Michael Carson and the effect that people will lie in court on an innocent, against an innocent person for their crimes to go away in effect and, and the prosecution gives them this power and, and for us we're not even allowed to question it or impeach them on it. I remember the judge uh, ruling that we couldn't even question him about what he was even in the jail for. It's like it's, he just like magically appeared there and was visiting or something like just walking through it wasn't even in there on a crime. Uh, it's very not uh, not even, not fair. And I know me personally, I kept thinking every day I was going to get to testify. Every day my mom, I was going to see my mom and my brothers testify. I was going to see my great-granduncle Hubert testify. You know, and so they couldn't be in the courtroom or anything. And Paul kept saying, you know, not today, maybe tomorrow. You know, and just kept putting me off until the whole trial was over with. And then he was like, well, maybe you'll get to testify, you know, your appeal, on your appeal. And I wouldn't get to testify until years later in, in my Rule 37 here, you know, and with the new attorneys. And all I had to do was tell him once, hey, I, I would love, I, I need to testify because I'll make it happen. And that's what Paul should have done. He should have said, I'll make it happen instead of just putting me off every day and, until the trial was over with and then my chance to let the jurors and everyone know the truth was God, you know, and years later, and, and you know, here recently, you know, uh, just reading other cases that he's worked on and, and things like that and transcripts of trials and things, and, and I found testimony where he's told jurors and stuff during Bordire to where it was basically his decision to put witnesses on the stand to put his client on the stand and not his client's decision to do that because he was the attorney he knew better 
And that's wrong. That's against the law. It's not right. And that's not even what he led me to believe. He misled me. And so when, when, when the system is that stacked against you, innocent can't win. I couldn't win. Damien couldn't win. Jesse couldn't win. Our voices couldn't be heard. Our family's voices couldn't be heard. Well, at least, well, in Jesse's case, at least his family got to testify. But then, like, I heard in your podcast, uh, I'm talking about the yellow ribbon, you know, for Jesse and the family community. What was supposed to be something beautiful, they made it into something ugly or tried to. And so that goes into the whole statement and they say, you know, don't say anything to the police because anything you say can and will be used against you. But when you're innocent, you're thinking, well, you can't use anything against me because I'm innocent. So I'm going to help you. I'm going to tell you everything I, I know about my innocence to help you. But that statement, anything can and will be used against you, is true because at that point, the state's not looking to exonerate you. They're looking to convict you. And so they're looking to make anything a weapon against you. And so it's a terrible situation of being in. And it's unfair and the deck is stacked against you from the start. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Were there any elements to Carson's story that added up? Like, for example, during your time in the detention center, did you know a guy named Betel? Did you know another guy named Jason? Did you play spades on a regular basis? Any of those things? Oh, well, definitely. There are things that add up, like um, Daniel Betel is a guy that was in there. Jason Duncan was a guy that was in there. I mean, jail was kind of the opposite of prison. And when I later went to prison, they didn't have cards, but they had dominoes. But in jail, they didn't have dominoes, but they had cards. You know, and so spades was a game that the guys played and stuff. During my Rule 37 uh, hearing, Jason Duncan came and testified uh, about that and about Michael Carson and how Michael Carson was lying. That he basically Jason Duncan was in there the whole time I was in there, and he knows knows that I professed my innocence from day one and knows what my experience was like from day one. And for Michael Carson to get there and get that testimony, he knew it was a lie. And so he testified to that effect. My private detective, Mr. Quinn, got affidavits, sworn affidavits from the other guys that were in there, like Daniel Biddle, and he testified, you know, 
about his time in there with me and how I professed my innocence to him and how Michael Carson was lying against me. How Miss Curitan, the lady who ran the jail, uh, the, the ran the whole jail, not just the individual jailers, but the whole juvenile side. She swore on an affidavit that, in her opinion, Michael Carson was lying just by knowing him and the various times he had come into the jail and then knowing me through the whole time I was there in jail because she would call me out to her office, you know, there in the jail, like out of my cage or cell or whatever, out of the barracks, the juvenile barracks, into her office. And, like, one time she even had my uh, probation officer there, uh, Steve Jones, and right there, you know, he asked me, he goes, point blank, he goes, Jason, did you do it? And I told him no. And she was like, that's what I believe all along. I don't, I never believe you do it. You did it just by watching you in here. And I watch these guys come and go all the time. I can tell you, this is her words to Steve Jones. She's like, I can tell you who, who the guilty ones are after a while. And so she wanted to testify for me at my trial, but it seemed like everybody who wanted to testify for the truth, no matter if they work, no matter who they were, whether they were my family or somebody that just, they were, you know, working for the sheriff's department way in Craighead County, if they, you know, came to the truth, you know, about my situation, you know, her truth was that she knew Michael Carson and believed he was lying against me. And so the sheriff disappeared her during my trial. Like, I don't know how that happened. Like, if he just like came over and was like, Hey, come with me and kept her out of town for the whole trial or what? You know, but she is, she ran that jail fairly and strong. She was a, a strong woman and it, it, it just scares me the, the, the links that the state went to to bar the truth from getting out in our case at every step. And then how my, even my, Public defender, uh, Paul Ford was, was, you know, complicit in it and, and the fact that he didn't call any of my witnesses. And, and I don't know if he didn't learn of Michael Carson testifying like right then, right before me, but how long, however long it was, he should have told me before, like he was walking through the door. Like even if it was that morning, like he should have said, Hey, here, here's what's going on. You know, what, what, what do you know about this guy? You know, what, what's going on? You know, and just ask me and you know, let me know, you know, something. Do you think that his whole strategy in tri- at trial was basically to try to let you fade into the background? Cause it seemed like he didn't really put up a defense. I think his defense was simply that the state didn't have a case against you. Does that seem accurate to you? Yes. That, that, that definitely seems accurate. He, his case is um, they didn't meet the burden of proof. So that was it, you know. But he has to listen to me, you know. He works for me, and, and I told him, you know, hey, I, I agree that they haven't met their burden of proof, but I also want to testify. And so he would just always ask me, you know, did, did they prove their case? And I'd be like, no, and then that would be it, you know. And he wouldn't let me say, you know. I want to still testify, you know, that, even though he knew that. So one of the things that may have cleared things up for the jury, had you been allowed to testify, is the so-called lake knife that was presented at trial uh, that you know the divers found behind your 
your dock or your pier at your house. And had you been allowed to testify, what would the jurors have heard about the history of the so-called lake knife? Well, they would have heard that it was definitely mine. And they would have heard, you know, how it got in the lake and how the summer before, when when Damien, after he had run away with Deanna and got locked away and everything, I, I was out on the dock fishing, you know, with my mom, my brother Terry, and I'm not sure who all else was there. There were several, like Terry's friends up there, and they had Mike and Chris. You know, these days they just come and go because we all live like right on the same street, you know, those run in and out of the yards or whatever particular time. But I remember Terry uh, was playing in the tackle box. This is my youngest brother. He's seven years younger than me. And he cut himself with with, with the knife. And uh, my mom got mad. And was like, I know she probably said something to him a million times about messing around with, you know, knives and stuff like that. And sure enough, there he is, right there, and, and cut himself. So she grabs it and throws it in the lake, right? And I was, and then me, I, I get mad. It's like, oh my god, you know, why, why you throw it? Like, why can't you just talk to him? So. I, I grab my survival knife by the sheet, and I go, "What if I just throw this in the lake?" You know what? But, but, but when I mind throwing it, I was holding it by the sheet, and it just went flying out of the sheet. Like I'm still holding the sheet, like miming I'm throwing it, but it went flying out of the sheet. The knife did into the lake, and I was like, you know, watching it and it's like going in slow motion with my jaw dropped. Like, oh no. <laughs> I just threw my knife away, and yeah, and then she was like, "Oh, well, that's even better." Uh, you know. <laughs> so she had thrown she had thrown Terry's knife in, and then you were you were being a basically a smart ass kid, and and were, were pretending to throw yours in to make a point, and then well, accidentally well, did. Well, I was like, I was uh, I, I was just trying to belabor the illog- how illogical opponent. I guess it was logical from her point of view, and I told you not to. Play with it. You did. You cut yourself. I'm throwing it away. All right. Right here, right now. That's mm-hmm. logical from her point of view. Me, I was like, oh my God, you can't just throw things away. And so what if I just throw this away right now? Of course, I'm like over explaining things now. You know, this all happened on a split second. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and then it just flew, you know. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> you know. But I told Paul this. It had been out there. I was like, hey, there's got to be some type of test you can do to determine how long this knife has been in the lake, right? Besides comparing it to the wounds, which we found out they did. They did a one-to-one comparison. I think it was Peretti or Kermit Channel did. It's been a long time since I looked at this report, and I don't have any of them anymore. i got to get all that back. Mr. Phillips' point. But one of those medical examiners did a one-to-one comparison, and it didn't match. And so Fogelman knew that, the wounds that he was pointing to and alluding to during the uh, uh, closing arguments. He knew that his own medical examiner did a test and that they didn't match. And he knew that he did not turn over those results to Paul Ford or me or any of the attorneys during or before the trial or whenever he got them. You know, he knew all of that. And, but, you know, even besides that, if, if 
Paul would have let me testify, I'd have told the jury all this stuff. And then, like, I told Paul, like, hey, you, there's got to be some type of way to tell how long it's been in the lake. Like, because snails and mussels, and like, there's wildlife that live in the lake. And they have life cycles from freshwater shrimp, and they leave traces of themselves on on things, you know. So I'm like, do that, you know, and, and also do forensic testing, you know, and stuff, which we didn't know that there had already been a one-on-one comparison by the state medical examiner, and it was ruled not to match. Uh, we should have been already told that. Anyway, kind of I went around in circles there. Because some things I found out later that were happening at that time mm-hmm. that didn't make sense to me then. I just knew, the only thing I knew then, that I did not commit the murders. I knew that. I knew that that knife was not the murder weapon. I knew it had been in the lake the summer before. And I knew those. And Paul said, hey, the whole reason we're doing this whole HBO documentary thing is to get money for experts, right? And to me, that means forensic testing and things like that. So I'm like, hey, here's something we can do with that. We can determine how long the knife's been in the water. We can also determine, you know, compare it to the wounds and stuff like that and to rule it out and all that. But but, but he never did any of that. So. Now, later, I think it was in 2004, 2008, uh, Dominique and uh, I don't know, is he a friend of yours? Garrett Schwarting had come forward and, and said that, that they knew the knife was in the lake. And in fact, that they had told police that the, the knife was in the lake. Were, were either of them around or do you know how they knew that the knife had been in the lake prior to the murders? Uh, you know, I, I don't know how they knew. I may have told them. I mean, my brothers may have told them. It had been a whole, a whole year, you know, but it had been a long time, you know, and so. I'm sure somebody knew. Hey, I mean, my brothers and everybody knew then and everything. So, but beside the point, my mom told Fogelman before he ever went out and searched for the knife that it was there and where it was at, how it got there, right? But then he said later on that he got a hunch that it was in the lake and exactly where it was at and all this stuff, right? That he got a hunch. That's impossible. The reason he said it was a hunch instead of attributing it to my mom, because he would have to then call my mom up there, and he didn't want my mom on the stand to testify. None of them wanted my mom. None of them wanted me to testify. They didn't want the truth to get out. That's why he attributed it to this hocus-pocus hunch stuff, you know, and that's why they resorted to the old satanic change the case number to 555 to 666 make you, you know, cloud your reason and not even see the case anymore, you know, because they've taken all the facts away and replaced them with stuff to make you hate somebody. And speaking of clouding facts, well, the, the other element of the state's case was the fiber evidence. And they had uh, experts testify at your trial that said that that your your mother's bathrobe couldn't be excluded from the red fibers found at the crime scene. I'm sure there's not a whole lot to be said about that because we found out in later testing that that was absolutely not true. And the lady, the lady who testified to that, whose testimony relied on, was uh, Lisa Sacrificio. That's her name. But yeah, and she, she even mis, we found that even misapplied uh, her own science to that. But 
even applying her science, she had like all these handful of different fibers that they went into each of our houses, right? And they were able to find something similar to each of us. But they could go with that handful they had. They can go to every single house in America. And they might not find one to match the red one in your house or the green one, but it might be the purple one, right? And then, and in Michael's house, it might be the, the, the fluorescent green one or whatever, you know, they're going to find one in everybody's house from the pool they were looking for to, to match their, their standards of similar, right? But yeah, like, like you said, um, using better technology later, it didn't even, it wasn't even similar. So that was a, a non-fact to rely on. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. So another thing that the jury never got to hear during your trial was where you were on the night of the murder since you didn't get called to testify. So let's ask that question again. Had you been allowed to testify, what would the jury have heard regarding your alibi? Well, I remember them asking me what I did that day and everything. And, you know, from the time I got up to the time I went to bed. Was that the what the police were asking you? Correct. And and, and, and everybody, you know, my, my attorneys, my own attorneys, uh, Paul Thor, Robin Wadley, you know, and then even though no one asked me on the stand, during my trial, people had asked me up to that point, you know. And so I don't know when the kids were murdered or whatever. So I'm just telling them where I was at all day, you know, where I was at the whole day like they asked, you know. And it started out, you know, getting up, getting my brothers up and getting ready for school. Um, this was a, a, a Wednesday, May the 5th, 1993. Uh, we, we we lived on the lake, you know, and my, my brothers are pretty easy most of the time. You know, I just like them. I usually get up first and get ready and then get them up and get them started to getting ready. And then I'll go sit out on the dock out on the lake, you know, and uh, watch the sunrise, you know, and, and if we have any leftover bread, you know, feed the ducks or whatever, you know. But that's something I did every day, you know, so. If, unless it was raining or cold or whatever. So, but that day was a little different. And I went to school and when, when I got home from school, um, Damien and Dominique were outside my yard waiting. And 
I can't remember now if Ken shows up or if he was already there, right? You're talking about Ken Watkins? Correct. Okay. At some point, we're in my room, right? And Damien and Dominique are making out. And me and Ken are playing Nintendo. And Dennis, my mom's boyfriend, opens the door and says, Hey, you got a phone call from your uncle. Right? Mom computer. And so I already know what it's about. I got to mow his yard, right? And so I get, I get the phone. He's like, hey, you come and cut my grass. I'm like, yes, sir, I'll be there. You know, I'm on my way, you know. And so hang up and I tell everybody, I tell Damien, Dominique, and Ken, hey, I'm going to go mow my uncle's grass. Y'all can come with me. Y'all can stay here. Y'all can go somewhere else, whatever. I, I got to go, you know, mow Uncle Hubert's grass. I didn't tell you this last time when on the, when when you came down to Austin, but I usually cut his grass on the weekends unless something happens, right? And the previous weekend, Saturday it had rained, and Sunday I had an art show in Marion at high school. We had a, a big art exhibit and art show and everything, so I had to be there for that and everything, so I couldn't mow his grass in, and... But I mowed his grass every week, so I couldn't, like, skip a week. But I could, like, maybe go maybe a week and a half or whatever. So, anyway, so I, I can't, I can't, like, I got to mow, mow his grass today because it's on Wednesday because it's Sunday or whatever. And so, you know, they're all like, hey, we'll go with you, you know, to your uncle's house. Mow the grass. I'm like, cool. And so we walk from, from my house to my Uncle Hubert's house. And Uncle Schubert lives in West Memphis. And I don't know his address, but he lives right underneath the water tower on the same block as the Boys Club in West Memphis. Anybody that knows the geography of West Memphis, that's where he lives. And the main road is, like, behind his house. But anyway, um, so we walk over to my uncle's house, and they all stay out on the porch. I go in. And talk to my uncle and then go out the back door and go get, you know, the lawnmower and start mowing the yard and everything. And then Ken, somehow or another, some point or another, comes around and sits on the back porch. And when I get through mowing the backyard, I notice Damon and Dominique aren't there anymore. And I'm like, hey, you know, I asked Ken, you know, where'd Damon and Dominique go? And he's like, oh, they had to leave until, and, let Damien's mom know that they weren't at your house anymore, at my house. I mean, to go, you know, so Damien's mom could go pick them up. So wherever they went, they went, which I found out later, they went around the corner to the laundry mat and called, used the pay phone. But I didn't know that then, right? So he just told me they left to go call Damien's mom to let them know to pick them up. So, so I finished mowing the grass and, um, my uncle pays me $10, right? And sometimes he can't pay, and sometimes he can. It just depends on if he got money or not. This time he had money, which was good. I mean, I don't complain if he can't. Usually he gives me, he can't pay, he'll give me a fishing lure, like these really old-timey, like handcrafted, made-out-of-wood fishing lures. So I, don't, I didn't even use them. I just kept them. So but anyway, I needed money, but, and so he gave me money. this time, $10. 
And so I wanted to go to skating, skating rink that coming up weekend. And so I know I needed at least five bucks. Cause it's like 450 or 475 to get in the door. I need at least five of that. And my friend Adam has this tape that I've been wanting to buy from him. He told me he'll give it to me for five, but you know, I might be able to talk him down for him, which I would end up doing. And so Ken and I walked back from my uncle's house to Lakeshore, at the Lakeshore. And on the way, we stopped at Walmart. And in front of Walmart, they had these Coke machines to where you can get a Coke for 20 cents, a Sam's Choice soda for 20 cents. And so I'm like, okay, I can take a dollar of this 10 Right, Ken and I can get a soda pop, and we can also play a video game before we finish going home. Right, and I'll still have nine bucks, which would be good for skating rink and for buying tape from Adam. So, Ken, I, I hold the the video game down. Ken goes in and gets changed, comes back, and we start playing, drinking soda pop. And I notice right next to us waiting. Somebody come up, you know. I don't know if you've ever, um, of course you have, Bob. You played at the arcade, right? Arcade video game. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, and so when you're waiting, somebody will stand up to the side. I noticed this kid that was Asian, right? And this time, I'm in the 10th grade, and I've been living in Marion since the 5th grade, since the last day of school for the 5th grade, you know, started going to school in Marion at first day of school at the sixth grade. So I left Memphis, Tennessee at the end of fifth grade. And in Memphis, I lived in Shelby County. And um, I had this friend, one of my best friends, name was Vincent. His mother was from Vietnam. And his dad, you know, was a white guy. And he was from the Navy and everything. And so I always missed him. I missed him more, you know, earlier, you know, when we first moved. But when I saw this kid there, it reminded me of Vincent. Right, instantly. Of course, I didn't say, hey, man, you remind me of him. I didn't say anything to him, you know, or nothing like that. But it, I just, right then, it reminded me of him, you know, so I remembered that. Because in Marion, there wasn't any Asian kids that I knew of, you know, that I knew. You know, there there may have been in other classes, you know, that I didn't, you know, that I didn't really have close contact with. But anyway, that kid reminded me of them. And so we, Ken and I, we finished playing, and walk back to Lakeshore and Ken was like, hey, I'm going to head on home and he, his, we come to his house. His house is on the street right next to my street. Right? I don't know the names of them. They're just right next to each other. And so he, he goes home and, and then I go home and then I stop at the house and then get a drink of water or whatever and then go on to Adam's house. And at Adam's house, it's his mom, his dad, and I don't know their names. And his sister, his sister was like, to me at that time was like, I don't know. It, teenage years were weird, especially girls. Like she was like a goddess to me, you know, like she was just admitted in bright lights and I just couldn't be in her presence, like without faltering over my words <laughs> and things, you know, like, oh, I can't talk all of a sudden, I'm, you know, and so she was older and her boyfriend was there and stuff. And so anyway, Adam and I went to his room, you know, and I was like, hey, you still got the Iron Maiden tape on him, you know, Iron Maiden power save on the body. He's like, yeah, five bucks. I'm like, hey, how about four? 
And he's like, uh, and I was forced to four dollars right then. I took out my pocket. I'm like, he was like, all right, you know, and so cool. And so I went back home. My brothers, you know, in and out of the house, you know, and go to their room, you know, they share a room and stuff. And we had a tuna casserole that night that my mom had made. And before she went to work, before school was out, because she'd go to work, uh, I don't know, one or two o'clock in the afternoon. And before school was out, she's at work, you know, when I get out of school and, and stuff and gets home from work sometime after I'm asleep. And so I, I sit down and eat and watch the Wonder Years and um, talk to what, what's her, uh, uh, Jennifer, uh, Holly, this other girl, Holly, not my wife now, this other girl, you know, and, and stuff on the phone. And, and when I go to bed, I have this double cassette stereo that I got for Christmas. My mom got it for Christmas, last Christmas. How was that, right? And um, so I put... My new tape and Iron Maiden Power Slave in side A on that side. And you could put on the other one, put any other tape in and just put it on pause and play. And so when that tape kicks off, the first one kicks off, the other one to kick on. So I go to sleep jamming out. But uh, my mom would always come in while I'm asleep sometime and, and just turn the whole stereo off, you know. And so when I get up in the morning, you know, and turn the stereo on, I'd have to always make sure, turn it down, you know, because if I turn it on, you know, it'd in the morning, it'd be jamming out because it'd be still on wherever it was when she came in and turned it off when she got in from work. And then the next day, you know, I was in a, a Coach Baca class when they came in and they was like, turned on the TV and they, you know, we had the news, they turned the news on and that's when they reported that they found three missing eight-year-old boys in West Memphis, you know, found their bodies and stuff. So that's how I found out. And you were in school when you found out. Right. Yeah. So a month later, you were arrested. You you spent almost a full year in, in jail waiting trial. Then the conviction came, and, and we know the story, the, the post-conviction relief that went on, and then you guys all three accepting the Alfred plea and going home. Uh, you talk a little bit as we're, we're getting ready to wind down and close this up, but what has your life been like and what have you been up to since you were released from prison in 2011? Oh, it's, um, you know, it's just been, been in a lot of ways, it's been many prayers answered, you know, because, you know, my mom and my family no longer has to worry about what what's happening to me in prison, you know, because for a long time, it was bad, you know, I had bones broken, people were trying to kill me and stuff, you know, and so, for my mom, she's just, she doesn't care about the Alfred place, she's just glad that I'm free, and she's got, in her eyes, you know, her baby back, you know, because I'm always going to be her baby to her, you know? Yeah. That's what my mom's like, you know? For me, it's been tough, because I, I, I hate the injustice of the Alfred place so much, you know? For so many different reasons. One of the reasons that uh, uh, Holly and I've got to be good friends and close with Pam Hicks, you know, the mother of uh, Steve, Steve Branch, who was killed, you know. And so through all this time, she's been grief, grief stricken and, and been hurt and wounded and, and taken on the emotional roller coaster of not knowing who 
murdered her son and then the state not continuing the pursuit of truth and justice in this. So that's been hard. And at the same time, you know, growing up in prison, I met other innocent people, like, because they would hear it. After they figured out I was innocent in many years, you know, they, they would, other innocent people would come up and say, hey, man, your case, when when you guys get to go home, it's kind of opened everybody's eyes and opened the door for the other innocent people in Arkansas to show that, you know, innocent, do, innocent people do go to prison. And so these post-conviction rules and cases, it'll give them strength and give the politicians and, and DAs or whatever strength to use them to free innocents instead of, you know, just not allowing innocent people to even put forth their case as a finality or whatever, you know. And so the Alford plea set precedent where the state's able to continue this 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 fallacy, this lie, and say that they don't convict innocent people. And, and, and so they're able to continue that problem and, and not put forth any effort. Like a lot of states now have innocence integrity units and things like that to where the state actively goes and tries to find innocent people who have been, you know, slipped through the cracks and try to bring them out and give them some hope. But that's the opposite happened in Arkansas. That's, there, there's so many injustices. Because of that, you know, and so, so since I've been out, um, one of my good friends, uh, John Harden, who was really good friends with Damien's wife, Lori, my, my now wife, Holly, who was, who was just my friend during my incarceration, but they had started a group called Arkansas Take Action while we we're inside to combat the lie that the Arkansas officials were telling everybody. Just that said, you know, the only people that believed that we were innocent or cared about the case were foreigners, people from New York or Hollywood, not from Arkansas. So John and Holly, they're all from Arkansas. They're like, and, and Mara Leverett and, and people are like, we're, we're here from Arkansas. We know that these guys are innocent and we want you to look at this case. So that's what they did with Arkansas Take Action. And so when we were released, John and I were talking. He's like, hey, you know, I, even though you guys are out now, I still want to help other innocent people. You know, I feel like this is my life's mission. And I'm like, hey, I promised the guys I left behind I wouldn't forget them, you know, and so let, let's do something. And so we put together um, Proclaim Justice, and um, we're marrying it off uh, Centurion Ministries, which is the very first innocent organization. And uh, Jim McCleskey, who, uh, started it is has uh mentored John throughout the years, you know, several years and on organizational structure and, and how to put it together and everything and really work close with us and, you know, just how to bring the organization itself to life, you know, and so you know, so that's what we do. We we investigate poor people, uh, in, in innocent people who, you know, don't have hope. We don't have a chance, you know, don't have anybody fighting for them. So we're, we're, we're getting in there and, and trying to get those guys home. And so when we first were released, I remember, um, somebody asked Damien, they were like, Hey, are, do you know of any other innocent people on death row? You know, and, um, he was like, yeah, you know, and, um, so he told him our, our, our guy, uh, Tim, 
I told him his name, and so that was one of John was like, hey, I would really like to work on his case. It was one of our first cases, and so we took up his case, and now just before Christmas, he he was on death row, and now he's free. Got to spend his first Christmas free, you know, and not on death row. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, and so even though we didn't get him exonerated, and we feel we should have, and, and we are not giving up on that, because had his life saved, I think, is a big thing. I know um, he went through something similar with, with working on uh, Ed, is that his name? Ed Aids? Yeah. Yeah, Ed Aids, you know. Um, y'all had to go through the parole route with him, right? And so we, we had to do something similar with him. You know, he had to get out on parole. But we he, he's not going to be executed. He's not on death row anymore. And so and uh, we got... Another innocent guy, Daniel Villegas, he's been out free for several years on a pill bond in El Paso. And uh, he, he gave a false confession when he was like 15 to a crime he didn't commit. And uh, spent 18 years as a slave in, in, in Texas Department of Corrections, you know, doing, I know what kind of work he was doing. He was, I was, I grew up in the slave field of Arkansas. I grew up in the slave field of Texas. And, he probably had it worse because it's even more south, huh? you know, so it's probably even hotter for him and more difficult. So anyway, he goes back up for trial finally next month. So we, we've been telling the uh, state, hey, you know, they've been threatening to try him, you know, for several years. We're like, all right, do it or, or not, you know, don't continue to just hold it over his head, you know. And But for his part, Daniel, he has lived his life fully, you know, work. Hard worked for a construction company. Uh, had a baby, got another baby. I mean, so which worries me, you know, that you know, the state brings some kind of person who lies on him, you know, again or something. I don't know, but I don't think the state will. Now that they know he has people in his corner, that you know, will check the veracity of everything that. They won't bring any jailhouse liars and things like that. His false confessions been thrown out, so they can't use that against him. So I feel confident in his case. I don't see why the state's wasting their money and retrying him, but that's what they want to do. At least it'll finally give him a chance to get it off of his record if he's able to obtain an acquittal. Oh, yeah, definitely. He, he and, and I know how he feels, you know, he's, he's looking forward to that, you know, as, as strange as that sounds, because trials are, are strange, like when somebody will be up there, like Michael Carson telling lies, and you're listening to it, and you want to say, hey guys, that dude's lying, but you know right. the judge has told you you can't say anything, so you just got, you can't even make a, a, a Facial expression like, come on, y'all believe in that or whatever, you know, like anybody right. would do if you know somebody's lying in your presence, you know, you're, you're not allowed to do that. And so there I was doing everything I was told to do. And even that was used against me. Like they say, everything can and will be used against me. Mm-hmm. So. Well, so your, your organization with, uh, with your partner, John Harden, is called Proclaim Justice and you guys are based in Austin, Texas. Is there a way where our listeners, if they want to support your guys' uh, organization, where they could go to donate to your cause? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, we have a website, proclaimjustice.org. Um, and on that, they have a page where you can click and donate. And then there's also a section about us, 
our creed, uh, what we're about, our board of directors, cases that we're publicly working on, and things like that, and, and ways, any, and other ways that you can volunteer your services. Like if you don't have like money to donate, but say you're an investigator, or you're a paralegal, or, or you're an actual you know attorney wanting to take on a case pro bono, or at least at cost. That's a way for you to contact us through there. So that that would be awesome. And we've been going for a while now, but I still feel like always that we're just now, you know, getting on our feet or getting our feet under us or whatever. Like we're just kind of growing or whatever. And I guess maybe we'll always, I'll always feel like that about it, you know. But I went to uh, the 25th anniversary gala of um, the Innocence Project that um, Barry Sheck and those guys and Peter Newfield and Jason Plum Jim Dwyer started and um, to hear them tell their stories of how they started out and you know the beginnings and then to see the impact they've had over 25 years you know is humbling but I'm like okay so it's alright you start out struggling you know and just barely making things work and happen you're, you're gonna as long as you just keep doing that putting forth 100% of your effort every day you're going to make something great happen and it's going to multiply out to many people and do good things. So that's why I just keep doing every day. Hopefully that interview with Jason answered a lot of the questions that many of you may have had. You got to hear what the jury would have heard had Jason testified at his own trial. And as we continue to draw closer on our mid-season break for Season 5, we're going to continue our theme of giving you the behind-the-scenes first-hand information about what happened with each of the defendants. And on deck, we have Jesse Miss Kelly's attorney, Mr. Dan Stidham, next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. And Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com designed and created our Season 5 logo. A special thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the -the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. 
for all of you tweeters. You can follow along on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.